0: In our last trial episode, we continued our review of Deputy District Attorney Thomas Binger's closing argument as he made his case for why the defendant is guilty of the first count of the indictment. On today's episode, we continue that review with the prosecutor's arguments for why the defendant should be found guilty of some of the other charges in the indictment. That's all coming up right after the break. After the lunch break on the afternoon of November 15, 2021, Prosecutor Thomas Binger resumes his closing. Having finished his argument for why Rittenhouse is guilty of the murder of Joseph Rosenbaum and why he has no valid claim of self-defense, Binger moves on to the second count of the indictment, first degree recklessly endangering the life of reporter Richie McGinnis by firing at Rosenbaum while McGinnis was in the line of fire. The second count of the information pertains to Richie McGinnis, who you heard testify.
1: He testified that he was in the line of fire behind Joseph Rosenbaum as the defendant fires four rounds with his AR-15, which is loaded with full metal jacket ammunition. And I'll talk a little bit more about that type of ammunition in a little bit. Uh, But you've heard testimony that it's the type of ammunition that is capable of going through body armor. It is capable of going through a squad car. It is designed to go through the target and continue flying on for up to 550 yards. Richard McGuinness testified that when those shots went off, he thought he had been hit. He thought his life was in danger. One of the rules that I think most people who are familiar with firearms knows is always check your background, meaning know what's around your target and know what's behind your target. This is true when you're hunting, it's true when you're target shooting, and obviously it's true when you've got an AR-15 in downtown Kenosha in the middle of protests with houses and people nearby. But there's no indication the defendant cared one bit about his background, cared one bit about where those bullets were gonna go, and as I said, he put Richie McGinnis in danger. Richie McGinnis, after this incident, you've seen on the videos, goes to try and help Joseph Rosenbaum and has his own video shows when he first gets there, he finds Mr. Rosenbaum's body face down on the ground.
0: Binger plays the footage recorded by McGinnis. The camera is hanging from McGuinness's body and shakes and jostles, offering us occasional glimpses of Rosenbaum as he lays face down on the parking lot asphalt until we hear McGinnis turn him over. After the body is turned over, we hear much of the same audio as we heard in the Drew Hernandez audio that we described on our last episode. However, because McGinnis is tending to Rosenbaum and not operating the camera, we do not see very much, and in fact, much of the time, the video screen is black. We hear someone say, stay with me. We hear someone say, get him up and get his arms. And then what sounds like the group carrying Rosenbaum to the SUV, including someone shouting, put him in the back. You okay? Just don't move, man. Don't move. All right, I'm gonna. Can I flip you over real quick? Oh, I'm gonna flip you over real quick, bro. get pressure on this, it? Get a head on it.
1: Get a light. Give me a fucking look.
0: Where? where?
1: Where? Dude? Where's the hole? fucking right oh,
0: no, Come on. Put pressure. Put pressure. Put pressure. What, what, put pressure. Put pressure. Put Put pressure. 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 I got, I
1: got it. Me, Listen Listen man, hey, you I got it. I got it. Go, I it.
0: it. get it. 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 I Binger then calls the attention of the jury to efforts by these individuals to save Joseph Rosenbaum's life.
1: You want to talk about medics. You want to talk about people who care. You want to talk about people who are there trying to help. You just heard them and you just saw them. People who didn't know Joseph Rosenbaum. They just knew somebody needed help. And while that's going on, The defendant flees, callously disregarding the body of the man that he just shot and killed. And as he's running off, he's lying to the crowd about what just happened. This is exhibit number 12.
0: Binger plays a video clip of Rittenhouse running towards the camera, and as he passes by and the camera whip pans with him, we hear someone in the video shouting, Why you shoot him? The prosecutor plays the clip several times and upon the third replay, he begins to narrate. The defendant says he pulled a gun.
1: That statement, he pulled a gun, was a lie. It's not true. The defendant knew it wasn't true. He's lying to the crowd as he's running away. Joseph Rosenbaum didn't have a gun. The defendant knew he didn't have a gun. The defendant is lying to save his own skin instead of going and trying to help the person that he has just shot and killed. In Exhibit number 3, Gage Grosskreutz's Facebook Live video, he tells a similar lie. As they're running, Mr. Grosskreutz asks the defendant, did you just shoot someone? And the defendant says something about the police and then says, I did not shoot anyone. And this is similar to the lie that he told Jason Lukowski at exactly that same time. As he passes Mr. Lukowski, he says,
0: I did not shoot anyone. And that was established through Mr. Lukowski's testimony. Binger next plays Gage Grosskreutz's video several times and begins to narrate over it to call attention to what the defendant says. This is Gage Grosskreutz running towards danger Running to try and help.
1: Who shot? Who shot?
0: Who shot?
1: It's hard to tell what his exact words are. I hear the word "not" pretty clearly in there, as in "I did not shoot anyone. I did not do anything." Jason Lukowski, he lies to the crowd. He lies to Gage Grosskreutz. He lies to. you have an Airbnb, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnbcom slash host.
0: As prosecutor Thomas Binger pivots his narrative to the crowd's pursuit of the defendant, a card on the court TV monitor reads the crowd attempts to stop an active shooter. So at
1: this point. The crowd is dealing with what they perceive to be an active shooter. Someone who has just shot someone who is still in possession of the gun, who is fleeing the scene, and how are we supposed to know where he's going next? You know, all night that night, the crowd has been hearing the sound of gunshots, they've been hearing fireworks, firecrackers, but now someone actually has been shot. The crowd sees the defendant running with a gun. He's lying to them. He still has the gun. He's shot someone. This is provocation to them. This is someone who has committed a criminal act and is putting people in danger. It is entirely reasonable for that crowd to believe at that moment that he is a threat to kill again. The defendant could have made it unequivocally clear what he was doing, he could have stayed at Mr. Rosenbaum's body, helped. Protect him. Help preserve his life. Call 911. As he's running, he could have announced to the crowd exactly what he was doing. Told them. He could have fired warning shots to try and help keep him away. He could have dropped the gun. He could have raised his hands and surrendered. He could have signaled to this crowd that he did not pose a threat anymore. But everything he does is indicative of someone who is still a threat. Now. The defendant is gonna tell you he wasn't. But from the crowd's perspective, how are they supposed to know any different? He does nothing to demonstrate to the crowd that he isn't a threat to kill again. And it turns out he does. It turns out within a few seconds, he does kill again. I submit to you ladies and gentlemen, that in this situation, the crowd has the right to try and stop an active shooter. They have a right to protect themselves. The defendant is not the only one in the world who has the right to self-defense. But what does the crowd do to try and stop the defendant? I submit to you, and this is not a criticism of them, but they use almost the least minimal, least intrusive means possible. They could have used deadly force against him. They could have shot at him. But instead... Somebody comes up behind him and knocks his hat off. Anthony Huber comes up with a skateboard and the defendant
0: blocks it with his arm, and then the defendant falls to the ground on his own. No one knocked him down. The new card on the court TV monitor reads, the crowd never even hurts the defendant.
1: This man that the defense wants to call jump kick man, he's got no weapons, no gun, no knife, no nothing, comes in and tries to kick the defendant in the face. Anthony Huber comes back, and tries to grab the gun, actually does grab the defendant's gun, and tries to pull it away because he's trying to disarm an active shooter. And Gage Grosskreutz comes running in, stops with his hands up in the air, until he sees and hears the defendant adjusting his weapon as if preparing to fire again. And then what does Gage Grosskreutz do? He reaches for the gun to try and disarm the defendant. Gage Grosskreutz had his own gun in his own hand. He could have aimed it and fired at the defendant, but he did not. And you heard Gage Grosskreutz testify about that, about how that is a decision that he was not prepared to make at that point in time. He is not the type of person who is just willing to take someone's life in an instant, unlike the defendant, who took two lives that night, very quickly and seemingly very easily. There is a video, Exhibit 5, which is the BG on the scene video, which traces this entire incident, which we call the second event. This is going to show you Mr. Huber, Mr. Grosskreutz, and the other individuals who are trying to stop an active shooter, using what I would characterize as the least intrusive means possible.
0: Binger plays the BG on the scene video and narrates as it plays. Someone knocks his hat off,
1: Anthony Huber comes in with a skateboard.
0: We hear in the video, what did that guy do? He shot someone, get his ass. And then after several shots ring out, we hear Gage Grosskreutz shouting for a medic.
1: In just a few seconds, the defendant kills one person, attempts to kill two more, and blows off Gage Grosskreutz's arm. It's that fast. This is someone who has no remorse, no regard for life, only cares about himself. And these folks that are coming at him, the jump kick man, Anthony Huber, aren't armed. They're not a credible imminent threat to his life they are trying to stop an active shooter. And they have a right to do so. Imagine if the crowd couldn't do that. Imagine if they weren't allowed to try and stop one, someone in this type of situation. After killing Anthony Huber, after severely wounding Gage Grosskreutz, the defendant walks away like he's some sort of hero in a Western without a care in the world for anything he's just done. You know, it's interesting. This occurs about a block away from the police line, right down the road. If the defendant's so concerned about his safety, the police are right there. And in fact, they pull up to this scene almost instantly. The defendant's got his medic bag on. He proclaims himself a medic. He doesn't know at this point if Anthony Huber's dead or alive or capable of being saved. And yet the defendant offers no assistance, makes no attempt to try and help anyone else. All he cares about is himself. We have taken that video and we have broken it down into individual frames. And I want to take you through frame by frame the incident with Gage Grosskreutz. Because a lot has been made about Mr. Grosskreutz's motions and what he does and where he goes and things like that. So I think it's helpful for us to take a look at this. At this point, you can see that Anthony Huber is staggering off after being shot in the chest. The wound has entered his lower left rib cage and has wound up almost exiting near his right shoulder. It is ripped through his ribs, his heart, his aorta, and he may not technically be dead, but he's, he's going to be dead within a few seconds. He is stumbling away. The defendant has the weapon pointed towards Gage Grosskreutz here, who is cowering, hovering, hiding, covering his head, trying to stay out of the way. And I'm going to go frame by frame here slowly as we see the movement. Now we see the gun is moving down towards Gage Grosskreutz. It is pointed directly at him from a distance of just a couple of feet. Gage Grosskreutz has his right leg planted as if he's pushing backwards trying to get away. The gun is still pointed at him. The defendant here is going to adjust the gun turn it over as if he's making some sort of adjustment on it. Gage Grosskreutz testified that this was a movement that he interpreted as the defendant preparing that gun as if it was going to fire again, as if clearing a jammed round so that he could shoot it at Mr. Grosskreutz. At this point, Mr. Grosskreutz is, I think, probably thinking to himself, if I can get away, I will until he realizes that the defendant is getting ready to fire again. In none of these frames is Mr. Grosskreutz's right hand with his Glock pistol pointed at the defendant. You can see Mr. Grosskreutz is actually backing up with his right leg. Let me go back a couple of frames here. This is frame 444. You can see his right foot is on the ground, but it's starting to move back. Now as I move forward, in the frames, 447, his right leg is moved back. This is someone who's about to retreat. His hands are in the air. He's backing away from the defendant until, as he's testified, he sees the defendant start to manipulate that gun in such a way that it makes Mr. Grosskreutz feel like he's about to be shot. And only then does he take action. What action does Mr. Grosskreutz take? Does he hold that gun with both hands, the glock that he's got, and point it at the defendant? No, never. Does he even take the gun with one hand and point it? No, never. Instead, you can see him start to lunge in with his left arm forward. The gun is not in this hand. The gun is in his right hand. He's lunging forward, reaching for the defendant probably reaching for the gun, probably trying to block the gun. You can see now he's gonna take a step with his right leg across the defendant's body, not directly towards the defendant, but across the defendant's body. As he's reaching in, almost swiping away at that gun with his left arm, he has bladed his body in such a way as to try and present as minimal of a target as possible, which is probably what saves his life, His right leg is about to hit the ground here. The gun, the AR-15 is pointed directly at him from just two, maybe three feet away. He's trying to shield himself with his left arm. And as we approach frame 500 here, the gun goes off. At no point in this process is Mr. Grosskreutz pointing his gun at the defendant. Frame 499, the gun is just fired. Frame 500, you see the puff of smoke, 501, the bullet has hit Mr. Grosskreutz's right bicep, severing it. I'm going to continue forward after this because you can see that his right arm, this is an interesting frame right here, 504, you can see that gun, I'll go back even more, you can see that Mr. Grosskreutz's arm with the right hand with the the gun, his right hand is pointed off to the side. What pulls that gun down closer to the defendant is the fact that Mr. Grosskreutz just had his right bicep severed. It's not a voluntary action. It's an involuntary, the muscle is severed. At this point, yeah, absolutely. That right arm is probably dangling down towards the defendant. It's not going to be able to pull that trigger without a working bicep muscle, and it's not a voluntary thing. It's done because the defendant just blew his arm off. But yeah, this is the time after the shooting when yes, the gun happens to be pointed at the defendant. And I gotta stop here for a moment and highlight the hypocrisy of the defense. Because according to the defense, if someone has a gun, they're a threat. If someone points a gun, they're a threat. There's only one exception to that, the defendant. By their logic, he gets to run around with a gun all night. But oh, we're not supposed to take him as a threat. He gets to point the gun at everyone. But oh, we're not supposed to take him as a threat. No, it doesn't work that way. The same set of rules apply to the defendant as everybody else. There's no exception in the law for Kyle Rittenhouse. There's no exception that says, if anyone else has a gun, you're a danger, except for Kyle Rittenhouse. There's no exception in the law that says, if you point your gun at people, oh, that makes you a threat and I can kill you, except for Kyle Rittenhouse, I can do it all night long. The same rules apply to him as everyone else. And everyone else has a right to defend themselves also, not just the defendant.
0: And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next installment as Prosecutor Binger continues his closing argument. Even when we're on a
1: budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands.
0: You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty. The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.